Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Well, again, Shabbat Shalom. We're in this series on the book of Mark. Today's part five. Uh, we're going to look today at the very famous story of Yeshua healing the paralytic, this paralytic who actually crashed through the roof of a house where Yeshua was teaching. So turn with me to Mark chapter 2, finally up to chapter 2, Mark chapter 2, verse uh, 1 to 12. A few days later, when Yeshua again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he'd come home. They'd gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they couldn't get him to Yeshua because of the crowd, uh, they made an opening in the roof above Yeshua uh, by digging through it and then lowering the mat the man was lying on. When Yeshua saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some Torah teachers were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Yeshua knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, arise, take up your mat and walk. But in order that you may know that a son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man, I tell you, rise, take up your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. And they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. Amen. Now, as I said, in this famous account, there are three different groups of people who are surprised and shocked by what Yeshua says and does. Uh, And on top of that, at the end, Yeshua answers the last group with a riddle. Uh, So we need to figure out what that riddle means. So let's, so let's examine this on the overhead. This passage has been looking at the three surprise groups. The three surprise groups are, number one, the seekers of the healing, the paralytic and his friends. Number two, the readers of the story. That's you, that's me, us. And number three, the religious leaders, uh, the Torah teachers. So first, what surprises the seekers of the healing? Now, this paralytic has some friends. And these guys are trying to bring the paralytic to Yeshua, who's speaking at a house in Capernaum, uh, bring him there for healing. Now, because they're of the crowd, they couldn't get in, so they make this opening in a roof, in the roof. So read this in, in verse 4, Mark 2, verse 4. Since they couldn't get him to Yeshua because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Yeshua by digging through it and lowered the mat the man was lying on. So, so, so here's a background. In first century Israel, the roofs of the houses were flat. There were one-story houses, and there were flat roofs, and there were stairs on the outside of the house leading up to the roof. And the roofs were made of, of wooden slats that were then packed in uh, with sod and sticks and reeds, all woven together into a thatch. So there was, the first layer was a thatch roof, and on top of the thatch, they packed in several inches of thick mud, which then dried in the Middle Eastern sun and, and was hard. Uh, so the roofs in Israel served like a deck. And you often took your meals up there. Uh, so these four friends, they dig through this roof, and they lower the paralyzed man uh, on his mat. Now here is what surprised and confused, maybe even irritated, the paralytic uh, and his friends. 
because Yeshua, he goes over to the paralytic and he doesn't say, rise, get up, take up your mat and walk. But rather, what does he say? Look at verse 5, Mark 1 verse 5. When Yeshua saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, sons, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the friends of the paralytic might have been thinking to themselves, might have actually been saying, mm, okay, good, uh, I guess, but that's not why we came. <laughs> Isn't it obvious, Yeshua, just by looking at him, that our friend has a bit more urgent, uh, a bit more immediate need? <laughs> but Yeshua is saying to them, no, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. So the first thing we learn here is that Yeshua is saying there is nothing more basic, nothing more important than a right relationship with God. Physical health and material prosperity, those are good things. But nothing is more important than having a right relationship with God, being reconciled to God. Nothing. Now, of course, Yeshua does eventually heal him. Because the Bible does not teach the body's unimportant, uh, or that the body is just a prison house of the soul. No. The Bible does not teach that this life doesn't matter, or that we shouldn't try to deal with suffering and disease and poverty. The Bible does not teach we should just fix our eyes on the beyond, uh, and wait to escape this dark, terrible world. No, none of that. The scriptures say the Lord created both body and soul. And he's going to redeem us, both soul and body. That's what the resurrection is all about. Yeshua does heal him. He does do physical healing. But as as significant as that is, it's not primary. Yeshua is saying there's something beyond this life that's far more important than this life. And if you don't connect to that thing that's that's more, more important than life itself, you will not live well in the present. What you therefore need more than anything else is a right relationship with God. A relationship with God as your heavenly father. Why? Because your sins are forgiven. So when Yeshua says, son, your sins are forgiven, uh, what he's actually pressing on him, what he's offering him, is a new relationship with God. Not just merely as your boss, but as your father. So that in Yeshua, you are a forgiven, loved, accepted child of God. That's the most important thing. Uh, No matter what your problem is that you think is the most important thing in your life, uh, that you think is your most urgent problem, no, this is your biggest need. A personal relationship with the Lord through the forgiveness of your sins. This is the true healing that you need. No matter what else your problem is, you need to have your sins forgiven. That's your most fundamental need. Uh, Okay, now what if you say, "Well, well, David, you might not realize this, but I am suffering from a terrible physical ailment at the moment. It's, it's very, very serious. Uh, it's ruining my life, and it is my most urgent need. Yeah, I'll be happy to work on a spiritual relationship with God at some point in the future, but what I need right now is to be well. And what Yeshua is saying in this passage is no. You need a relationship with God as your Father even more than you need to be physically well. And here's why. Because even if you got that healing today, you're going to get sick again. Something else bad may happen. And you'll be whipsawed back and forth between fear and anger and dark despair. 
unless you know the Lord, not just as some kind of remote, distant deity, but as your father. So, for example, if you're four years old and you have a great father, uh, he's going to appear to you as a loving, infinitely wise, and yet at times inscrutable and irritating person. Because your father, he's constantly telling you to do things and to stop doing that and to start doing this, and and that upsets you. And so four-year-olds, they often cry and they scream because their father from time to time has to tell them, you can't do that. Stop doing this. Go to your room. Clean your room. (laughs) Take a nap. Go get in time out. Clean up your toys. However, in the end, if if you're a four-year-old with a great father... You fall into his arms and you trust him. Because you know that he loves you and he's looking out for you. And there's no other way you're going to get through life. And unless you have that kind of relationship with the Lord, unless you're able to trust the Lord. Uh, I know the Lord the way a four-year-old knows his or her father. Unless you have a relationship with God as your father, you're never going to be able to handle all the problems of life. And if you're healed of a disease today... You can possibly, you're going to get sick again uh, somewhere down the road. And and you won't be able to handle it. What you need more than anything else is to be reconciled to God. A right relationship with God. You need your sins forgiven more than you need to be healed. Okay, maybe you're not sick. But you've been ill-used. You've been wronged. You've been abused. Uh, but uh, But for you, the main thing also is that you need to be forgiven. For your sins to be forgiven. If you've been wronged, I mean really wronged, there's one thing you need more than anything else. To not be bitter. To be bitterness is the poison that you drink thinking the other person will drop dead. <laughs> because if you can't forgive someone who's wronged you, they win. <laughs> because they rob you of your joy and, and they distort your life. If you stay angry, angry with them, you're drinking the poison hoping they drop dead. But it only hurts you. So on the overhead, if you're wrong, if, if you've been wronged, what you need above everything else is to be able to forgive the one who's wronged you. But guess what? You won't be able to forgive unless you've experienced forgiveness yourself. Unless you see yourself as a forgiven sinner, you won't have the humility to forgive others. Uh, you'll feel too superior. Uh, you won't have the emotional strength to forgive somebody else. Yeshua is right. You need your sins to be forgiven. You need to be reconciled to God more than you need anything else. It's your most urgent need. Uh, it's the only thing that will change you from the inside out. You see, our biggest problem is that we're building our identity on something other than Yeshua. Uh, whether it's uh, your career, uh, your artistic or, or athletic achievement, uh, or your body, our relationship, uh, politics, uh, a professional degree. Uh, we're all looking at something and saying, if I had that, then everything will be okay. But when you do that, when you look at these things and say, if I had that, then I'd be significant. Then I'd be someone. Uh, then I'd be safe and secure. And I feel good about myself. You're looking at these things to save you. Now, of course, you would never use that term. But in essence, you're looking at these things to save you. And as a result, uh, if if you're never able to get them, you're always going to be angry. uh, Always unhappy. 
always feel empty. Uh, but if you do get them, you're actually going to be more empty, uh, more unhappy, because they don't satisfy. They don't change who you truly are internally. Yeshua says in the overhead, I am the only Savior who, if you get me, will fulfill you, and if you fail me, will forgive you. Now, when we first turn to God, it's often, we often do, admittedly, ask Him to help us to get our saviors, to get the th- things we think are our most important, uh, like this paralytic man did. Uh, we're asking God for assistance so that we can save ourselves. And it doesn't occur to us that our real problem is we're looking for something besides Yeshua to be our savior. So we cry out to God with all of our surface problems, but the Lord is saying no. You've got to go a lot deeper than that. You just want to change a few things in your life. You just want to, you just want help to reach this or that goal. Uh, but you need to change the very thing that your heart most wants. Because that's what's ultimately screwing you up. And, the, and no one has put this better metaphorically, this need to change your actual heart and what your heart desires, uh, than C.S. Lewis. In his famous book, one of the, one of the Chronicles of Narnia, called The, 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 the uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. It's about, in this book, it's about this 12-year-old boy named Eustace. Everybody hates him. He's a brat. He hates everybody. Uh, he's selfish. He's mean. Uh, nobody can get along with him. He's on this boat called the Dawn Treader. Uh, and the boat pulls into an island. And Eustace, he wanders off. And he finds this cave. And the cave is filled with treasure. Loot. Diamonds and, and rubies and, and gold coins. And he says, I'm rich. And now I'm going to be able to get back at everybody and show them who's boss. I'm going to laugh at them and step on them. And he falls asleep. And what he doesn't realize is the horde of a dragon. And, and because he falls asleep on a dragon's horde, thinking greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart, and dreaming greedy, dragonish dreams... When he wakes up, he has become a dragon. A big, horrible, ugly, terrible dragon. Uh, And as time goes on, he realizes there's no way out. Uh, He can't go back to the boat. He can't return. He can't go back. He's going to be there all alone the rest of his life. He's lost hope. And then one day, the great lion, Aslan, he shows up. And Aslan leads him to a clear, cool pool of water. And says, undress, jump in. And suddenly Eustace, he realizes, oh, undress. Uh, he means, take off my dragon skin. So he begins to gnaw and claw and tear off the scales. And he starts to realize, I can shed my skin. So he works at it and he claws at it. And he finally peels off his skin. And to his terrible disillusionment, he realizes that underneath, he's still a dragon. He's got another dragon skin underneath So he tries again a second time, and there's still another dragon skin underneath. So he tries the third time, to no avail. Same thing happens over and over again. Finally, Aslan says, you're going to have to let me do it. Now here's what Eustace says. I'm going to put this on the overhead. Eustace says this, I was afraid of his claws, but I was desperate. So I said, okay. Uh, And the very first tear he made went so deep I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off 
Just as I thought I had done myself before the other three times. Only they hadn't hurt. And there it was. Lying in the grass. Only ever, ever so much more thicker and darker and, and knobbly looking than the others had been. And then he threw me in the pool. It smarted like anything. Only, but only for a moment. And then I saw I had become a boy again. This is one of the most vivid, powerful pictures of what it means to be born again. To become a new creation in Messiah Yeshua. To put off the old self, to put on the new self. And this is what Yeshua is saying to the paralytic in our passage. And this is what Yeshua is saying to you today. Is your greatest need. Like the paralytic and like Eustace, we think we only need a little bit of help from Yeshua and then we can save ourselves on the overhead. But Yeshua says no. He says, I must take you deeper. A lot deeper. You must let me take my claws and go all the way to your heart and change you from within. Change from within the main thing that your heart wants. I must become the absolute Lord of your life. That is your greatest need. And the process of surrendering to him will always at first feel threatening. Because Yeshua, this Yeshua, the real Yeshua, has, has claws. So that's the first thing we learn here that from, from the first surprise. Uh, the surprise of the seekers of the healing. They're thinking, Yeshua, why are you talking about forgiveness of sins when, when he's paralyzed? And Yeshua is saying, because that's what he needs more, far more than he needs to get up and walk. So the overhead, that's the first group. The second group that surprised, that surprised is us. We, the readers. Uh, the readers of the story were also surprised by something. When Yeshua goes up to the man, this man hadn't said a thing, and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And that should make you surprised. On the overhead. Because from the beginning to the end of the Bible, there's an ironclad rule that before God, there is no forgiveness without repentance. God will forgive you, but you must repent. God doesn't look at your sin and casually say, oh, don't worry about it, uh, you're forgiven. Doesn't matter if you're sorry or not. Doesn't matter if you change, uh, you're forgiven. No, he does not do that. God never forgives without repentance. You must repent, meaning you must turn from your sin and turn from yourself and turn back to God. And yet here, Yeshua, he walks over and he says to this man who hasn't said a thing to him, son, your sins are forgiven. And so we should be asking ourselves, what's up with that? Uh, Are you surprised? Are you surprised now? You should be. Uh, We, the readers, are, are surprised, should be surprised. Now, what's the answer? Well, to start, please note that neither Yeshua nor the gospel writer Mark are acting as if Yeshua is somehow overturning here everything everything the Bible has ever said uh, about forgiveness. Neither Yeshua nor Mark are acting like this is a great revolution. So let's grant that neither Mark nor Yeshua think that he's overturning everything the Bible has ever said about the need for repentance. Indeed, as we saw in the last four weeks, in Mark chapter 1, Yeshua, Yeshua actually began his ministry by saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So then how do we explain this? I think the first hint is here in verse 5, uh, when it says, Yeshua saw their faith. 
Uh, he knew what was what, what, he knew what was within the paralytic and his friends, and it was clearly demonstrated by their incredible actions of going all to all this length uh, to bring this man before Yeshua. Uh, their faith was demonstrated by their works, by their actions. They were faithful because faith and faithfulness are two sides of the same coin. Indeed, James two verse twenty six says, "A body without the spirit is dead." Uh, just like that, so also faith without deeds is dead. And then he says in James 2.18, I'll show you my faith by what I do. This paralytic demonstrated uh, his faith. And Yeshua saw his heart. A heart soft towards God and repentant. Yeshua saw their deeds, but secondly, he could also read their hearts. Look further in the passage for proof of this. Look at down in verse 8. Mark 2 verse 8. We read, immediately... Yeshua knew in his spirit what the Torah teachers were thinking in their hearts. The Torah teachers, they weren't saying anything out loud. They were just thinking to themselves, and yet Yeshua can hear their thinking. He could read their hearts. And if Yeshua has that ability, suddenly we we realize what's going on here. There must have been an inarticulate desire for mercy and grace and forgiveness in this man's heart. There must have been an unexpressed, inarticulate yearning, a cry of the heart within the paralytic. And Yeshua is so gracious that he reads the man's heart. And even though the desire for forgiveness may be fragmentary, uh, imperfect, unexpressed, nonetheless, this is enough for Yeshua to see the man's faith, to see his heart, and to respond. So eager is Yeshua to give you his love and grace and forgiveness. Do you see this? Praise his name. Yeshua, he's not waiting for the paralytic to do it all right with, with this perfect formula. Just the opposite. Yeshua's pushing his grace. Uh, he's looking for an opening. Uh, he's creating the opening. His grace is initiating. His grace is aggressive. And the overhead... My friends, so eager is Yeshua to love you and be gracious to you that even when the desire for forgiveness may be imperfect and and fragmentary and inarticulate, nonetheless, Yeshua pounces and grants forgiveness. So the overhead, what do we learn from this? We learn two things. Number one, the trustworthiness of Yeshua. And number two, the greatness of the gift of forgiveness. So first, the trustworthiness of Yeshua. In Mark, there are several places where we see Yeshua's tenderness. Even here in verse 5, notice Yeshua says in verse 5, Son, your sins are forgiven. He's looking at a man who's an invalid, who who can't express out loud too much. And Yeshua, he's that sensitive to where you're at. And he's that willing to forgive. Even when you don't have it all together. The tenderness, the compassion, it's remarkable. Now, notice Yeshua, he's not like some schoolmaster who interacts with a child and says, okay, but say please, please sir. You don't, you don't see Yeshua standing on formalities. Rather, Yeshua is like the father in the parable of the prodigal son. The son's coming home to repent, but rather than stand at the front door and, and wait for him to come home and then to grovel, the father sees him way off in a distance. And girds up his loins with no concern with proper uh, uh, social protocol. Uh, and he runs to his son. And before his son can even verbalize his repentance, the father hugs him and kisses him and welcomes him home. 
on the overhead. This is so important. The father doesn't love him because he repents. The son can repent because he's loved. In Yeshua, you see this aggressive grace that at the same time is tender and gentle and kind and compassionate. So you can trust this man. You see both his supernatural power and his gentleness and compassion. Trust him. Trust him with your life. So in the overhead, number one, trust this man. Number two, we also see here the greatness of the gift of forgiveness. Uh, it's remarkable that Yeshua, the Son of God, God, in, God incarnate, comes to earth, and his number one priority is the gift of forgiveness. Incredible. And two things about the importance of this gift. First, we, we live perhaps today in the first society uh, in the history of the world where there's no consensus about what is right and wrong. And that's why Franz Kafka wrote his kind of weird novel called The Trial. It's about this random man called Joseph K. who's just living his normal life. And then one day, out of the blue, for no apparent reason, he's arrested, thrown in jail. He doesn't know why. Uh, and no one will tell him why. Uh, perhaps it was due to a Facebook post he wrote. <laughs> because in this novel, when they put you in Facebook jail, <laughs> they really put you in jail. <laughs> any event, he's under arrest, he's in jail for months on end, Nobody can, but he can't find out what he's arrested for. No one will tell him what his crime is. The guards just say, you got to talk to my supervisors. And he can't figure it out. So he starts to ask himself, what did I do wrong? Uh, did, did I do this? Or maybe it was that. Or maybe it was this. Uh, or maybe I, did, uh, I, maybe I did this. That's what I'm being in prison for. And then finally, at the end of the book, a prison guard takes him out and kills him. And that's the end of the story. <laughs> you say, okay, okay, typical Kafka. <laughs> we're, not, we're not supposed to understand it. <laughs> but he actually tells you what it's about. Because in his diary, he writes this on the overhead. He writes, the state in which we moderns now find ourselves today is sinful, independent of guilt. And by this, what he means is that, yes, we're still sinful, of course, but we don't feel guilty anymore. Because we live in the first society that can't tell us what's right or wrong. So, for example, is adultery right or wrong? Society no longer has a consensus. We live in the first society that says right or wrong is up for you to decide. For yourself. Don't let anybody else put a guilt trip on you. All moral claims are merely socially constructed constraints. And they're the, therefore they're relative. So who's to say well, what's right, what's wrong? Uh, so don't feel guilty about anything. And yet Kafka says, we feel like sinners anyway. Deep down, just like Paul says in Romans, we still know we're sinners. And that's the truth. We still feel like failures. Uh, we, claim, we, we claim we don't believe in hell or judgment. And yet we have this sense of condemnation that we can't shake. We feel like phonies. We feel inadequate. Uh, we feel shame and guilt. And, and we can't put our finger on it because we've rejected biblical truth. That's what Kafka's saying about modern man. There's this voice inside of us that calls us cowards uh, and fools uh, and ugly and says we're not living up. We have this vague, nameless sense of condemnation that we can't shake. The fact of the matter is we need forgiveness. If you've never experienced Yeshua's forgiveness, you're more unhappy than you think. 
You say, well, I don't feel guilty about anything. Kafka's right. You may not feel guilty about anything. And yet deep down, you know you're a sinner. You know there's something wrong with you. You know you haven't lived up. You feel the inadequacy, that voice that tells you you're a failure or a coward or ugly, and that voice that's secretly laughing at you. And when it's removed, though, that well, when you when when that guilt is removed and you receive that gift of forgiveness in Yeshua, you suddenly realize now how shallow and inadequate and unfulfilling your life had been prior to coming to Yeshua and receiving His new birth. That background ache is gone. It's now replaced by a supernatural joy and peace that passes all understanding. That's what Yeshua offers, and He yearns. To give it to you. It's on the overhead. That's the first two groups who are surprised. Uh, the paralytic and his friends, number one. Number two, we, uh, us, the readers. The third group that's surprised are the Torah teachers. They're very surprised. And Yeshua's response tells us a lot about who he is and what he does. What he came to do. So look at Mark 2, verse 6. Now some Torah teachers were sitting there, thinking to themselves... Why does this fellow talk like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but but God alone? And that's right. They're absolutely right. Only God can forgive sins. And that's the point. When they see Yeshua saying to this man, your sins are forgiven, they say, he's claiming to be God. Exactly. I've had many people over the years come up to me and say, where in the Bible does Yeshua ever claim to be God? Well, it's on every page of the New Testament, if you know how to read it. <laughs> Especially if you know how to read it Hebraically, with, from, with Jewish eyes. In the last four, weeks of long, last four weeks alone, we've seen it in every part of the first chapter of Mark. And, and we're going to continue to see it in every single chapter of the book of Mark. And right here, and here in the first part of chapter 2, is an obvious, blatant example. So, consider... Dan, Robin, and Rusty. Dan punches Rusty in the nose. And Robin says to Dan, I forgive you. (laughs) Well, Rusty says, excuse me? (laughs) Uh, Robin, I don't think it works that way. (laughs) Only I can forgive Dan, not you. Because the offense was against me, not you. (laughs) And that's right. You can only forgive someone if the sin is against you. So if Yeshua walks over to this paralytic and says, all your sins are forgiven, how can he say such a thing? What's the implication? (laughs) Only the creator can say such a thing. (laughs) Only the creator of Dan and Robin and Rusty. (laughs) Only the creator of the paralytic. Only your creator, the only person you owe everything to, the only person all your sins are ultimately against. Only God alone. Only he can say, all your sins are against me. This is David. King David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Psalm 51 verse 4, says, against you, you only have I sinned, Lord, and done what's evil in your sight. Now, your sins may have been against others, like Dan and Robin and Rusty, but they're ultimately against the Lord who created Dan and Robin and Rusty. So the Torah teachers, they knew (laughs) immediately that Yeshua was claiming to be God himself. But in response to their outrage, how dare you call yourself God? Yeshua does three things to further prove his deity. 
First, he reads their minds. Because they didn't vocally say, how dare you call yourself God. But Yeshua knew they were thinking this in their hearts. Secondly, he calls himself, very importantly, the Son of Man. This is a divine term from the book of Daniel. And then third, Yeshua poses a riddle to them. And then answers the riddle with a supernatural healing of the man. Now this riddle is wonderful because it shows us what Yeshua came to do. So here's the riddle. Look at Mark 2 verse 8. What, Yeshua says, why are you thinking of these things? Which is easier? To say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. Or to say, arise, take up your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man, here's the term, the Son of Man is authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take up your mat, go home. And he got up, took up his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. So here's the question. Which is easier? To say you're forgiven or to say you're healed? Now actually, I need to warn you, this is a trick question. <laughs> because there are two answers and they're both right uh, in their own way. On the surface, it's easier to say, verbally just to say, your sins are forgiven. That is to say, arise, take up your mat and walk. Because no one knows except God whether his sins are really forgiven. Well, we can all know whether he actually gets up with it and takes up his mat and walks. So just verbally saying your sins are forgiven is easier. A second reason why, a second reason why it's easier to say your sins are forgiven is because we can forgive someone who's wronged us. But just like Rusty, he can forgive Dan for punching him in the nose. <laughs> but most of us cannot as easily do a supernatural, miraculous, instantaneous healing on the spot like Yeshua does here. Most of us just can't snap our fingers and do that. And there's a sense in which, yeah, that's the right answer. Because Yeshua says, to show you that I've got the power, arise, take up your mat, and walk. It's a classic Hebraic Koba Homer, uh, how much more so from light to heavy. Uh, so, so Yeshua heals the man right in front of them. And with this, Yeshua is saying, yes, I am who I said I am. Uh, and I prove I had the power to do the, the lighter, the easier thing, forgive, by doing the harder, the heavier thing, uh, to heal. Classic Hebraic logical form. But interestingly, the word used here in verses 11 and 12 when he says, get up, arise, is an unusual word in the Greek that Mark uses at the end of his gospel to describe what Yeshua did on the third day after his crucifixion. On the feast of, biblical feast of first fruits. Mark uses it here to describe the resurrection. Because Yeshua got up, he arose. And by using the same word here with the paralytic, which only uses one at the time in the whole book of Mark, Mark is signaling something to us. And Yeshua is signaling something on the overhead. And it's this. The only reason why the paralytic can get up now, the only reason the Yeshua can both forgive him and heal him, is because someday Yeshua is going to lay down in death and rise again for our justification. And so in the end, yes, if someone wrongs me, I can forgive them. So in that limited sense, it's easier than trying to heal a paralyzed man. But for Yeshua to forgive all our sins, that's infinitely harder than to say, take off your bed and walk. Because it means Yeshua dying for our sins on the cross and rising again the third day. Hallelujah. Let me end with two illustrations of how this amazing cleansing that Yeshua gives this man. The first is the famous story from Shakespeare's Lady Macbeth, 
remarkable description of terror and guilt. Powerful picture of the effect of not being forgiven. Unforgiven. Lady Macbeth, she helps her husband kill the king. And it unhinges her mind. And she walks around at night seeing blood on her hands. And she tries to wash it out, but she can't. And of course, that's a picture of her guilt. And the overhead, and she cries out, Out damn spot! Out damn spot! Oh, who knew the old man would have so much blood in him? And all the perfumes in Arabia can sweeten this little hand. And later on, Macbeth, he's talking to a doctor about his wife, whose mind is now gone. And he calls grief that perilous stuff that weighs upon the heart. That ache. That sense in which we modern people, uh, within us modern people, it's probably more inchoate, uh, more, more background. Uh, you don't realize how much it's weighing on your heart. But it's there. And in her case, it drove her mad. Why? Because guilt is indelible. It's not easy to get out. That's why Yeshua is saying, which is easier, to forgive sins or to heal? And the ultimate answer is that guilt and sin is much harder. It's not easy to deal with. Lady Macbeth, uh, she can't get it out. She says, I can't get the stain out. And the reason we have that voice in us that gives us that sense of condemnation is because deep down we know whatever your moral standard happens to be, uh, whether you choose it to be love uh, or justice or integrity uh, or purity, whatever it is, you know you have violated them. And you can't wash it off and you can't wipe it away. You can't just say, well, I'll try harder next time. No, because there's something indelible about those spots. You can't get the stain out yourself, that damn spot. The second story is an old Celtic fairy tale uh, called The Black Bull of Norway. The story is about this prince who's in a battle and who kills someone that he later regrets killing. He feels great shame and guilt and regret and remorse over it. So after the battle, he tries to wash his tunic and get all the blood out. But he can't get it out. Uh, the blood won't come out. And so it's decreed that if there's any woman in the kingdom who can get the spot out, get the, the blood stains out of the tunic, she would become his bride. Because she would be his true love. It's a Cinderella-type story, because there's a nasty older woman in the story with three daughters, uh, and a fourth girl who's a serving girl, a humble servant, uh, this girl who, who waits uh, upon the family. And this little girl, she doesn't know anything about uh, the prince's decree, but the bloody shirt has been brought to, to this house, and none of the three daughters can get the stain out. None of the three daughters could, 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 could cleanse this, the shirt. The servant girl doesn't know anything about this story, but one night she sees all this laundry to be done, including the bloody shirt, so she washes it all and the blood comes out. The next morning, the evil stepmother sees what's happened. She grabs the shirt, takes her oldest daughter up to the prince, says, look, my oldest daughter, she got the stain out. This is your true bride. So they get engaged, but nonetheless, the prince feels, no, this can't be right. This can't be the one. And in the end, it's revealed who really got the blood out. You see, whoever gets the stain out, the damn spot, your blood guilt, he has got to be your savior. He is your true love. And he sure comes to you. And he says, that's me. I'm that person. I am going to the cross. It's going to take a lot. 
Malachi 3 verse 2 says of the Messiah, He'll be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. He'll sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver and he'll purify and refine you. Yeshua says, I can get the stain out. I can get rid of your blood guilt. But I have to go to the cross to do it. But I am doing it. So come to me. I am your true love. I can wash the bloody shirt. I am your true love. Go to him. Trust him today. Amen. Let's stand and pray. The music team, come on up. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Thank you for this passage, Lord, of uh, this paralytic uh, driving home to us the, the importance of faith. Uh, faith in action. Uh, faithfulness. Yeshua, you saw this man's faith. His faith had feet. And it resulted in action. James tells us, just as a body without a soul is dead, so faith without deeds uh, is dead. So, Lord, help us to have today this living faith, this vibrant faith, this life-changing faith. Help us for the eyes of faith to see now that there's nothing more important, nothing more urgent in this life than pursuing a personal relationship with you. Not a boyfriend or a girlfriend, not finding a spouse, not marriage, not family, not career, not money, not success, uh, not health. Drive home to our hearts today. There is nothing more important than an intimate relationship with you, Yeshua, through which our sins are forgiven and we're reborn from above and we are made into a new creation and filled with a new heart and a new spirit. And our life is transformed from the inside out. So, Yeshua, I give you permission. Take your claws, as it were, and go deep all the way to my heart. Take off my old man. Clothe me with your robes of righteousness. Yeshua, thank you that your love is so great that you are eager to forgive. Even as you forgave this paralytic before he even verbally uh, repented. Lord, help me to be quick to repent. Quick to turn from my sin. Quick to turn from myself. Quick to turn back to you. And receive your new life. Uh, And the washing of my sin. And the cleansing of my guilt. For you, Yeshua, are my one true love. And I therefore pray this in your name. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.